hope you all can forgive me. I don't normally make a habit of sitting down while I preach, but I have hurt my foot this past week, so uh, bear with me as I sit down and be comfortable while I preach. I want to ask you a question. Do you have hope? Do you have hope? I know already tonight we have heard people mourning the affliction of refugees at our border, the illness of the very young, the sorrow of aging parents, separation from loved ones, and friends and family leaving the faith. This is a world where it's very easy for hope to slip away from us. Maybe you have hope. Maybe you hear the promises of God week in, week out, read from the scriptures. And you can lay hold on those things and say, yes, those promises are mine. Or maybe you're more like me. Maybe you're filled with doubt. Filled with anxiety. Never really sure if this story of covenants and oaths and promises is real. Maybe you're like me. But today's message is in the end a message of hope. That's what the author of Hebrews is calling us into. He's calling us into a story of hope that is very ancient. A story with characters like Abraham, who doubted very frequently. Characters like Moses and David and Jesus. The author of Hebrews invites us to leave our doubts behind and participate in a story of hope. As we heard read, today's passage is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. It's a bit of a strange passage, a passage that a lot of us aren't familiar with, and one verse that we're very, very familiar with, the whole anchor of the soul idea. We've seen that on Christian t-shirts and pillows and coffee mugs. But everything around it, it's, it's almost like it's cloaked in an unusual mystery. It uses language that we have no parallel to in our modern world. It's unusual. So perhaps we can title tonight's message, An Unusual Hope. Let's get started with a word of prayer if we can. Almighty Father, give us wisdom to hear your words. Give us assurance and hope to set aside our doubts. Remind us again of your covenant with us and your Son who stands as our great high priest. We love you, Lord. Amen. As we've been going through Hebrews, we've come across this idea that the person writing this was most likely a pastor. 
a pastor speaking to his congregation that was at a crisis moment. A congregation filled with doubt. A congregation possibly even under threat. Threat of death or threat of great suffering. Last week, Austin read to us a warning passage. A passage that warns us not to drift away from hope. A passage that compels us to hold tight to the promises of God so that we may not lose the blessings of knowing who Jesus Christ is. So this passage is the pastor's example. He's already told us to hold tight to the promises, to be patient, and to live as hopeful people in a hopeless world. To do this, he reminds us of a story that his readers would have been very familiar with, and a story that we should be very familiar with. That story is God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. He was the first Israelite. He's called the friend of God. He was the first person who God really pursued to bring into a relationship with himself. He was the ancestor of Jesus. And as such, in a way, he's our ancestor. We who have faith in Jesus all look to Abraham as an example. But if you notice, the author of Hebrews does not appeal for us to look at Abraham's faith. Or Abraham's certainty. Or Abraham's righteousness. No, what the author of Hebrews calls us to pay attention to is Abraham's doubt. If you're looking for an example of faith, I don't know why you would pick someone who was filled with doubt. Because maybe you're in there thinking, well, Abraham doesn't sound that different than I do. No, but God looks at Abraham's doubt. The author of Hebrews looks at this concept called a covenant that God made with Abraham in spite of his doubt. As Reformed and Presbyterian folks, we hear about covenants a lot. Every time we come to the table or we participate in a baptism, we sing songs about covenants, we read books about covenants, We have covenant theology and covenant seminaries and colleges. We hear the word covenant quite frequently. But I don't really know if we know what it means. It's one of those things where you hear something so often, you assume you know what it means without actually ever hearing what it means for the first time. In God's covenant with Abraham, Abraham would not have had this predicament. Abraham knew what covenants were. They're very familiar to him. 
But for us, covenants are very ancient. If we look at Romans and the Greeks, they didn't have covenants, at least not in this way. We have covenants today when we get married. It's a binding agreement between two people. But this would not have been the kind of covenant Abraham would have known. Now, in order to find the kind of covenants that Abraham would have known, the kind of covenant that the author of Hebrews is calling us to remember, we have to go back to the Bronze Age, to places like Iran and Iraq, places far away and far removed from us in time, something that seems very foreign. The story of Hebrews 6 that the author invites us to participate in is the covenant of Abraham. And we see that very clearly portrayed in Genesis chapter 15. So you can turn there and read with me. Or you can simply listen to what Genesis 15 says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. By the way, Abram was just Abraham's name before the covenant was instituted. So anytime you hear Abram, just think Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and now a member of my household shall be my heir. The word of the Lord came again to Abram. This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look at the heavens, and see if you can number the stars. The Lord said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? The Lord said, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they shall be servants there. They shall be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go up to, up to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried in a good old age. And your children shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram. This is a very strange, very strange passage, especially to me. I know when I was thinking about this text, I ended up reading about four books and scratched my head through all of them, trying to figure out what was happening. What's happening here is a very normal covenant ceremony. In order to understand what a covenant was, I want us to go and look at what Abraham would have understood a covenant to be. What Abraham was expecting when all of this was going down. A covenant is a political system. A political system where a king who had presumably conquered a village or a country would go in and meet the townspeople and offer them a declaration. The townspeople didn't want the covenant, but they didn't have much say in the matter. After all, they had just been conquered. The king would declare to his new people, I am your king, and you will be my people. And with this statement would come a series of laws, a series of blessings and cursings. On the one hand, if this town decided to obey the king, pay their taxes, not rebel against the crown, the king promised them protection. They would not be invaded from foreign countries. They would be prosperous and their grain harvests would be guarded. But on the chance that the townspeople decided to disobey the king, to rebel against their covenant maker, the promise was that the city would be utterly destroyed. That's the whole point of this very grotesque, gory, and perhaps confusing scene of animals being slaughtered, cut in half, and left on either side of the road. Now I just want to stop and say I do not want to downplay whatever emotions or confusions would come up from a scene where animals are killed and blood is left laying everywhere in part of some strange ancient ritual. I know that for a lot of modern folk, especially people who have high ethics about animals, this seems cruel. It seems wrong. I don't want to downplay that. Although we don't have time to really deal with that right now in the sermon, I would be willing to talk to you afterward. Uh, send me an email, whatever comes up. But what's very important here is what all of this symbolizes. This whole strange scene with sacrifices and Abraham taking a nap and fire pots and torches. It's all a symbol of the steadfast, unchanging, 
faithful love of God for his people. For Abraham, the sacrifices, the walking down the road would have been very familiar. He would have seen it in the covenant rituals between kings and towns, between business partners, and a whole bunch of other people. But Abraham would have understood all of this to be a statement that should he ever break the covenant, should he ever disobey and follow after other gods or be cruel to his fellow man, the story of these animals would become the story of Abraham and his children. And as Abraham's spiritual sons and daughters, it should, be a meaning, it should have meaning to us as well. So that if you or I were to ever doubt the goodness of God, if you and I were to ever abandon God in favor of our own lusts, our own greed, our materialism, our racism, sexism, that we would become like these animals. We would be torn apart and left lifeless. Almost like the handshake about this agreement between God and Abraham would have been the Lord and Abraham walking together down the road in the middle of this field of carcasses. This is what Abraham had expected. Abraham knew his own doubts. He knew his own proclivities. Perhaps he was just willing to take a risk. Maybe Abraham had some hope deep inside himself. So he was willing. He was willing to go and take a risk with this God. To say, I know I I probably can't do this. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try to follow after this God. But we see that that doesn't happen. Abraham does not walk through this field on this road. Rather, we see Abraham falling into a deep sleep and the presence of God passing alone between the sacrifices. I can almost imagine the Lord looking at Abraham's heart. Knowing that if Abraham were to fail, this relationship between God and Abraham couldn't work. He looked at Abraham's heart and saw all of this doubt. and said, no, it can't be him. Maybe he looked past Abraham to Moses and said, it can't be Moses. To David and his bravery or Solomon and his wisdom. Peter and his zeal or St. Paul and his intelligence. Maybe he looked at me. When he got to me, he said, no. Can't be him. He won't obey. 
The Lord God knew that people like you and like me are more apt to be selfish and follow after what we want than to be loyal, to follow after what He, what he demands. The only option for us was to receive the curses of the covenant. It was to be like these animals. But the Lord was not willing for that to happen. When the Lord looked and looked for someone to stand in Abraham's place, and he found no one, the Lord said, I will take Abraham's place. I don't know if you realize it, but this is incredibly just preposterous. No king has ever been so committed to his people that he would say, if you break the laws, I will be punished. I can't imagine perhaps a Taliban warlord going into a, a village high in the mountains of Afghanistan, conquering his people, burning the village, and giving them a set of laws, and saying, now if you break these laws, you get to kill me. That's unheard of. Certainly Abraham had never heard of it. None of the covenants he had ever seen would have worked like that. Why would God, why would the king of the covenant willingly take the curse of a people who he knew would fail? It's because he loved them. God loves people who, like Abraham, are filled with doubt. He loves people like you and me and all of our varied shortcomings. He loves us. And how greatly does God love us? He loves us to the extent that He would rather take up all the sufferings that we deserve, all the curses of the covenant that He has made with us, and he willingly suffer those himself than to see his people turned away. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, and Paul reminds us later in Galatians, Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. When you and I fail to treat our spouses well, when we cheat out co-workers from benefits that they deserved out of our own greed, when we abandon children at the border as unimportant, when we look at our neighbor of a different skin color with suspicion, perhaps with anger, We deserve 
to be cursed, to be abandoned by God and hung out on a tree left for dead. I don't want to downplay that. I don't want this to be simply something we affirm of our membership vows at the church. Yes, we are rightly deserving of his wrath as we move on to other things. This is real. This is very heavy. Because I think deep down we all know that's what we deserve. Because we all know our sins and our shortcomings. But at the end of the day, God would not have that. Because he loved us so greatly that he took the curse upon himself. He was the one who was hung on a tree. He was the one who was abandoned and cursed so that we would know what it was like to experience the blessings and joy of knowing God. Where do we see that? Where do we see a God cursed and abandoned on a tree? We see it in the cross. We see it in Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that the author of Hebrews is calling us into. Yes, Abraham is our example. But we have a hope far greater than Abraham could have ever imagined. The author of Hebrews says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The hope we have is that when the covenant and our failure to keep the covenant demanded blood, demanded vengeance, our priest did not go before God with the blood of bulls and goats of rams and heifers and turtle doves like Abraham saw. But at the same time, he did not go before God with the blood of people who deserved to have their blood shed. He doesn't go before God and say, look, here's the head of all these ungrateful covenant breakers. No, he goes deep into the temple right in the very presence of God and says, Father, I have stood on their behalf. The shame that they deserved, I've taken. The curse that they deserved is mine. The blood that they owed, I give you mine instead. And that's why we hope That's the anchor dropped deep beneath the waves. That no matter how much the world changes, no matter the sufferings we see, the cross doesn't change. The covenant does not change. 
Because of these things, the fact that God loves us, in spite of who we are, will not change. Lord God stands in our place because we could not stand on our own. It's like we're men who've had our feet cut out from underneath us. And Jesus on the cross comes and picks us up so that we're not just hobbling along. But we're standing on his two feet now. This is the anchor of our soul. That we have a priest who took our place. To finish up. The author says that Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek. If you do not know who Melchizedek is, I don't blame you. He has three verses in the Old Testament, and we're looking at where he is in the New Testament. We see him once in Psalm 110. There's a promise of this passage. And we see him one more time. We see him in Genesis chapter 14, right before the covenant passage we just read. In this passage, we see Abraham having been victorious in battle after rescuing Lot from the pagans, meeting up with several kings in the area around what is now Israel. One of these kings, in verse 18, is a man named Melchizedek. We don't know much about him, other than than that he was the king of Salem. He was a priest of the Most High God, and he spoke on behalf of God to Abraham. When the author of Hebrews is calling us into the story of Abraham... And calling us to see Jesus as the true and better Melchizedek. What he's offering us to do is to stand here in this passage. Listen to what Moses says. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to Abram. For he was the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. When we doubt, like Abram doubted. When we're facing great struggles, like the battle that Abram was fighting. The author of Hebrews invites us to stand in Abram's place. Because Jesus now stands in Melchizedek's place. So when you and I are doubting, we must go before the King of Jerusalem. The King of the church. Not to cower at the covenant giver who's threatening us with death and destruction. But we must go to the King to receive the hospitality of a feast of bread and wine. We must go to the priest 
who leads us in the right way to worship as God's covenant people. And we must go before the prophet and hear the blessings given from God to you, his church. We stand as we feast on bread and wine. Perhaps Jesus would say to us something like, Blessed be my church, my God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, for he has delivered you from the hands of your enemies. So let me ask you, do you have hope? If you do not, this is the place where you should come. The place where the King of the Covenant wishes to serve you as a servant and to give you hope. Blessings to you all.